later, there are no shortcuts. Don't don't even waste any time looking for them. Hard work goes with everything, and, and um, if nothing else, if you're not tall, you're not good looking, and you're not particularly clever, don't let anybody hard work you out. They start renegotiating the real Brexit terms, um, but all be back to all that will we won't be. But it, you know, the sun will rise, life will go on. What I would say is there's a lot of uncertainty out there. That's when you make money. Yeah. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inspire Podcast with myself, Kurum Kang. We bring you leading content and interviews across business and entrepreneurship. Today, I am joined by an absolute industry heavyweight. He has over £300 million worth of investments across business and real estate. He has over £200 million worth of annual property sales. The CEO of Real Estate Investors PLC, chairman of Bond Wolf, uh, which was founded in 1983. And he's the ex-president of the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce, former regional chairman of Coots Bank and former director of Birmingham Hippodrome. He was the High Sheriff of County of the West Midlands in 2009, and he was awarded CBE in the 2010 New Year's Honours List. As well, he's founded Sandwell Valley School in 2017 and released his own book, Brick by Brick, in 2019, of which all profits go towards the Bond Wolf Charitable Trust. Today, we are joined by none other than Mr. Paul Bassey, CBE. Pleasure. And um, I know I gave quite an in-depth um, background there. Of course, you've done so much. Is there anything else you'd, you'd want to add that you've um, done or are doing at the moment? Uh, no, no, that was a good summary. Um, you know, I'm nearly 60, so you were never going to summarise everything in a few minutes, but that was pretty good. But, um, you know, I'm a working-class lad whose parents immigrated here in the mid-50s, and I guess my home life, my personal life, is very similar to many other um, not only just Sikh Punjabi families, but generally immigrant families that were settled in the UK. So, you know, my journey is not much more spectacular or different from others. I've been very fortunate, but uh, you know, it's a well-trodden path the, the journey I've been on. Fantastic. And you, you touched upon that journey in your background, and I know that's something you start off within your book. Um, you know, giving a background to your family from immigrants and the impact which you know, being a Sikh gave you. Could you give us uh, a bit more in-depth about that? Yeah, just to answer that, but the backdrop, the book that I wrote, there was never any grand goal in my head that one day I would write a book. In fact, it was done fairly quickly, fairly efficiently. Um, I'd been asked to do a book many times and I never felt a bit embarrassed by it. I really didn't think I had anything to share. But uh, as times move on, I felt that it was time to record the journey, not just for me, the business, but the youngsters in my family, for them to know where we came from and what's going on. And I think you also have a responsibility to share that journey with you, some of your um, your, your network, the people that will be listening to this. Um, and of course, lastly, it was a very easy way to raise some money for our charitable trust. Um, so the book was there for those reasons. It was also quite therapeutic. Um, and part of that therapy, I realised that actually, subconsciously, all I'd really done was gone to work and been that good little Sikh boy that my grandmother wanted to be, which was work hard, be honest, um, be trusting, don't deceive anybody, and you know, keep your head down, 
just get on with it. So really all I did was go to work and be a Sikh boy. And actually those principles are very, very good values upon which to run a business. Um, so yes, we, we make profits, that measures us. We look after our staff, so that's like looking after your family. And then we look after our community, which is very much the Sikh ethos, and that's really where the Charitable Trust came in. You touched upon um, you know, Sikh values which were good for business then. Any in particular that we could talk, talk about? You know, the, most religions are good religions, you know, um, whether you're Sikh, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist. Uh, and the Sikh religion, and sometimes it's not referred to as a religion, is no different. Um, just being honest, being hardworking, sharing, looking after your community, you know, all the normal stuff that most of us do. And all I did was I, I really didn't know any different. I just believed what my grand told me and I treated everybody in business the same way she told me I should treat everybody in my life and that seems to have paid off. And, and back then, um, was it always part of the journey that you wanted to create big business in real estate or did that come further down the line? I, I was a fairly typical young lad. Um, I played football to a quite a good standard. I was never good enough to be professional, but I played to a good standard. Um, I did everything else a young man does. Um, you know, that, that is what it is. Um, the, the big picture came to me slowly. Um, the one thing with Sikhs is my grand would always say, if you're going to do something, you excel at it. So I got this habit of being the best at whatever I did. Um, if I have a car, I have a great car. If I'm going to have a restaurant chain, it'll be the number one. If I'm going to have an auction business, it'll be number one. Our listed business is number one in the Midlands. I got into that, those habits quite early on. Um, so the big picture was excelling. Um, coming from a Punjabi Jut background, we were landowners owning property seemed the closest thing to that <laughs> so I bought property because I felt like I, I had something for it I didn't want to do things that could disappear off the end of a screen and I could go home being broke you know? and, I, and I wanted security I came from a family that had nothing who worked in factories and foundries and the real reason why I went to work and of course it got out of hand because it gets beyond you know your day-to-day -day needs was just security and I've been you know, that's what I've managed to get but of course I, I now have that it's taken me a decade or two to realize I had it um, and now there are more interesting things to do like charity mentoring um, watching the next generation fulfill their potential great and gave good background to property and you know you're starting off and seeing the bigger picture one thing that we like to do with our audience is give them the real understanding of the challenges, risks, and that hard work and effort that you have to put into when you're starting a business. Can you talk to us about your startup and what it really looked like? Right. Hard work goes with everything. And, and um, if nothing else, if you're not tall, and you're not good looking, and you're not particularly clever, don't let anybody hard work you out. So you can work as hard as anybody. Nobody can take that off. So it's a given that you would work hard. And again, that's seek. You worked hard. That's what we did. You know, uh, my, my granddad never actually thought anyone who had a shirt and a tie did a day's work because to him it wasn't grafting because he was used to grafting, um, whether it be land or in a factory or a foundry. Um, so, but to start, um, 
quite quickly I was lucky I got this vision of where I wanted to be um, and I just you know it was like a sat nav destination I put the destination in and I just got on with it of course you get knocked out around now and then um, but whether it was my sort of arrogant seek attitude I don't know but I wasn't prepared to allow that to get in my way I just carry on but uh, I hear a lot of youngsters saying you know oh, you're in property it's so hard now it was much easier back then that's exactly what everybody was saying when I was 18 actually it's much easier today there's more access to money there's more ways of getting money there's far more intelligence around to allow you to go and find opportunities there's far more mentors around so you know hard work you know those seek um, virtues I have you know practice those but whatever your religion is will have those but it's not any harder today not at all if I, I could argue that it's a lot easier today okay. and um, you touched upon one word that I heard you mention there risk and it was another word that was within your book um, can you talk about any particular risks which you took upon you know the way and what, what you were thinking whilst you were taking them yeah. I, I was in an asset backed business so when you're in an asset backed business um it's not a huge risk because there are assets behind your risk. Um, today, I have experience and knowledge that would stop me from doing deals that I did when I was younger. Um, I did those deals when I was younger because actually, I, looking back on it, I wasn't actually um, intelligent enough to understand the risk. So I got on with it. Secondly, I really didn't have a lot to lose. Um, so... I was never a risky investor. Uh, I'm very risk averse today, but risks can be calculated. Um, you know, have a plan A, have a plan B, have a plan C, have a plan D. Um, and and if, if those don't work, you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and actually, I don't, today, we don't take a single risk. We really don't. Um, it might be that the end result is A, B, C, or D. It's not that their end result is going to be a negative. Okay. And to somebody who's starting out their journey tomorrow or, you know, a few years into it, mm-hmm. would you advise them go out and take that risk? I would say do all the homework you have to do for anything. Go find yourself a really capable mentor. Um, go find yourself good advisors. Make sure they charge you the right money because a, a lot of them won't. But more importantly than the fees they want to charge is picking the right advisor. Um, there's only one um, point in that book when it was published where I had the publisher come back to me and say, Paul, we want, to, want you to change this. And I used the F word when I was talking about advisors <laughs> because advisors can either make you or break you. Um, they can have you going down a path for 10, 15 years that you needn't have gone down if you'd have had the right advice in the first place. So good mentors, good advisors, and... You know, Get your big picture, don't be afraid, and go for it. What's your advice to anybody about getting those good advisors and good people around them? Go and find, if you want to be a chef, if you want to be a DJ, you want to be an athlete, you want to be a businessman, go and find the best at it you can. And just respectfully ask them for a bit of advice, for a cup of coffee, and I guarantee you 99% of them will make the time for you. And that really will hopefully make sure you get the right advisors and you go on the right journey. And um, another point that you mentioned in your book and you 
you know, mentioned, obviously, the long journey in, in property, um, you know, how patience is key and it can take 10 to 15 years to actually be an overnight success. One thing I personally see on you know, social media channels such as Instagram and Facebook, people are always looking for shortcuts. They're trying to sell shortcuts. Can you talk about the actual real work that happens to be a success and you know, what's really needed by people starting off? Anyone who's listening to this, let me tell you, there are no shortcuts. Don't don't even waste any time looking for them. Okay, they just they they don't exist. Um, I used an expression once, which seems to have caught on, is that overnight success is fifteen years. So people would suddenly say, "God, Paul, you've done really well," or whatever, and I'd say, "Well, I've been doing this for like twenty years. I haven't just woken up and done really well." Uh, and the other thing which you haven't asked me that most people normally do is everyone keeps using the word success. Success is a very relative thing. Um, to somebody to earn, and I'll, I'll use money because it's easy, to somebody to earn £100 a week is a huge success. Okay, To somebody else earning £1,000 a week is a huge success. I know men and women that wouldn't get out of bed if they weren't earning £100,000 a day, and they don't think they're successful. So success is relative, but when you're on this journey, what you've really got to find is some contentment, some satisfaction. And, and where I got it wrong was I got on this treadmill and really didn't stop to look around. It was just on, 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 on. And actually, you know, on reflection, certainly with my children and my nephews, I do encourage them to sort of stop, take it, time and enjoy it a little bit because otherwise uh, there's no limit to success. Um, you know, I meet other people who got a very, very good job. They might be a teacher or a doctor, hugely satisfied, hugely happy, hugely content. So success isn't just about making money. You've got to get the balance. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, you were on the treadmill um, there. When was it that you stopped, looked back and thought, hold on? Need to take some time here. It's quite easy, really. Um, I got thrown in the back of an ambulance because uh, I had two blocked arteries. Um, and let me tell you, I don't smoke. I don't drink. My diet's very good. Um, there are no family hereditary reasons for me to have been ill. Um, and that happened 15 years ago, say. Um, I know exactly what caused that, despite all the tests that I've gone on. Because they turn around and they tell you, well, you're Asian and... You guys have got all this in your blood and what have you. The truth of the matter is our being is not used to stress. We farm, we field, we cut the crop, we get married young and all, you know, there are no mortgages. All of that stress, which I outwardly managed very well, silently caused blocks, blockages in my arteries. And that, that's, that's when I realised I need to do something about it. I was also quite lucky. I'm I'm very happily married. My wife is far more balanced than me, and actually, because I get told to do whatever whatever she tells me to do, like most husbands, um, and I listened, that allowed me to get a bit more balance. When you went to get more balance, what was it you changed in your lifestyle or, or mindset and health? Right. The, the biggest thing was when I do goals. I used to say that if I'm going to earn a certain amount of money lose a certain amount of weight, get the business to a certain date, size, there would always be a date. I'd have to get there by a certain date. 
and I was very focused. I was silently obsessed, outwardly focused. Um, now, if I don't get there on the 31st of the month and I get there a week later or a week before, I don't stress about it. Now, you could say, well, you're in a position to not worry about it. That's true. Um, but I really don't think it mattered that much before, but perhaps that's what made me do what I did. But it's, it's not good. A little bit of balance is essential. That's one thing that really interests me, um, Percy. So say if you started with the mindset you have now around you know, being okay with one or two weeks, um, you know, with hitting a goal. If you'd started out with that, do you think you still would have built what you've built or would it be less or more? Uh, unlikely. So I think there is a period during which, like you lads are working 24-7, you're thinking about your business 24-7. Um, that's okay for a very short period of time. You know, when you get into your early 30s, you've got to just take the edge off that. Carry it through with your 30s. You know, you, you master your art in your... 40s normally you get your rewards in your 50s um so you know treat those decades for what they should be for you okay and uh, talking about health and mindset there do you have any non-negotiables daily you know whether it's uh, you know kpis you want to hit or meditating uh, my non-negotiables are, are medicine uh, <laughs> i have to take some tablets every day um i i guess my non as I do everything at my pace. I I won't do breakfast meetings at seven o'clock in the morning. I won't do seminars. I won't go to dinner events till one o'clock in the morning. You know, if it fits into my lifestyle, I do it. In fact, I've changed my diary quite a bit. Um, most of the time, I won't have any appointments in my diary. It's only twice a week, um, Tuesday and Wednesday, will I actually have appointments in my diary, and I'm far more productive. I've got no appointments in my diary than I've ever been having a full diary. So, you know, there are, there are some non-negotiables about being pushed around, but generally just relaxing your diary helps a lot more. Yeah. In, in those days which, um, you know, you don't have anything planned, do you say as soon as you come in or how, how does that look? It, it, it's the busiest day I have of the week because I've got no restrictions. I'm totally free to speak to who I want to see, go and see who I want to see pick up the phone to speak to a guy with a with an idea. I produce more activity for our business when I've nothing to do than I ever do when I'm back-to-back -back meetings. That's really interesting. I'm sure people can take a lot away from that. And that also brings me back to, again, another point which you bring in your book about big thinking, visualisation, manifestation. How, how did you used to do that, um, you know, when you were starting up your business and how do you do it today? Um, big thinking again is relative um, somebody else's big picture somebody else's small picture um, I, I do a lot of visualisation I didn't consciously do visualisation you know I would you know, I always wanted a sizable business um, you know, an investment business I didn't actually want to work in a business I wanted to own and manage businesses I went out and saw other businesses that are out there today um, you know, the Richardsons in the Midlands, you've got the Caledonias in London, people who have been running investment houses for 250, 300 years. Having seen them, that was something I wanted to emulate because it's been lasting centuries, not just decades. Great. And 
Um, another part of your book is you, you mentioned that um, there's a book at home uh, where you describe what your house today would look like over 30 years ago. Um, years ago, not far from here, I was in the Midland Hotel. I was a 22-year-old boy and somebody said to me, um, you know, what did your life look like in 10 years' time? Well, nobody had ever asked me that in my family. Nobody had ever asked me. To me, it was, you know, where there's a nightclub called Liberties on the Hagley Road. You know, what's happening at Liberties this <laughs> week was the totality of my forward planning. Um, and he just said to me, well, you know, what sort of house would you like, you know, in the future? And I remember having this boy, naive boy, thought about a certain house in a certain place. And over the years, I've had some beautiful homes, I still have, and I lived in a lovely home that was similar to that visualisation. And then a couple of years ago, a little bit before I did the book, I just, one Saturday morning, went to view a house, and it was the house that I remembered from then. No way. And um, I told my wife that we were buying it, and she said, you've got to be crazy if you think I'm living there. Anyway, it's about the only time she listened to me, so, <laughs> so I bought it. And is that something you advise other people doing or, you know, people you mentor to have that visualisation uh, picture? Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, Visualising it is one thing. Um, and then I also think you should sort of almost speak out loud to yourself, actualise it. Um, and it's, it's a habit. I, I do a thing called Savers, which is in one of the books I recommend at the back called Morning Club or something. Yeah. Um, so you... You visualise something and then you actually affirm it as well to yourself. So you visualise your big house and then, you you know, it's just a habit or a practice you can get into. I'm sure these things will do nobody any harm. Um, they work for me, so I, I adopted them. Right, and is, is that a daily, weekly, monthly? Uh, when I was younger, it was a minute-by-minute minute thing because that was the obsession. Um, now it's kind of once a week. Or if I've got a lot on and I need to tidy things up a little bit, then, then I'll do that. Um, I'm more thoughtful now than I am active, hence the less people in my diary and being more proactive. Right. And uh, I think um, with the diary, we're quite lucky to have got you in today. Um, and, and another point which we see on so many social media streams uh, is, you know, leave your job, go follow your passion, you know, just do do what you want, leave your nine till five What's your advice and thoughts on following money or following your passion? Listen, you've got uh, all of these things are fads. You know, you've got to be true to yourself. You've got to follow yourself. Um, money, nobody's ever chased money. People think they chase money. Um, there's a couple of us in this room here now, and if I said to you all, oh, you, "Do you want ten million pound each?" You'd probably say yes, but it's not ten million pound. It's the things behind that. It'll be the house you want to buy, the holiday you want to go on life you want to lead that's what you concentrate on and then if you work hard and do all the other things you should do in your business the money just turns up nobody's ever really chased money they think they do they chase the wish list and uh, the money follows right and um, on that topic of money um, and the thing your book mentions is you know importance of creating multiple streams of income what advice can you do to people uh, give to people who who want to create that but might be in a nine till five how can they start creating different avenues of uh, income? Uh, I'm going to sound like I'm a scratch record. But <laughs> everyone's different. If they want to go on that journey, go and talk to somebody they know who's got multiple income streams. Um, I mean, I, I have 
multiple, multiple income streams, and they don't always work out well. But if one of them's not working out well, all the others are absolutely fine. I'm not waiting for one thing to come off or one golden egg to come good or one thing goes bad and it ruins my life. You know, having lots of different revenue streams all the time is good for you, but that suits me. Somebody else, a nine-to-five job is really good for them. Um, so, you know, be true to yourself. And if you want to go on the journey you targeted there, again, go and see someone who can give you a bit of guidance. Absolutely. And um, uh, from that, you know, when you create large sums of wealth, or not even creating large sums of wealth, but at any point in your life, it's always important to give back, help those around you. Can you talk about philanthropy work, which you've done personally and you're doing at the moment? Yeah, Um let me give you the backdrop to that. First of all, a business has to make money, okay? Because if we don't do that, none of the other good stuff's going to happen. So you've got to be a good business. You've then got to look after your employees in that business because if you don't share the cake with your employees, um, they're not going to be around for long. So I absolutely share my cake. If we do well at the top and take big dividends out, I share it right the way down the business. And that's why I've got people who've been with me 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Having done that bit, you've also got to look after your shareholders, your investors. So let's say they're part of that bit of the team. Your end user, your customer, etc., etc. If you're not looking after him, you're not going to have a good business. That's not going to last. So once all that's done, you can now think about your community because I think you have a responsibility to do that. And going back to Sikhism, that's one of the key pillars Sikhism is to look out and share and look after your community. So I found it quite a easy thing to do. So from different businesses, I shave a little bit out. So for example, if you go and eat at one of our restaurants, if you look closely at the bill, the bottom will have contributed a pound to our trust. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but you know we're doing a few thousand people a week in a few different restaurants, plus we contribute to it as well. If we sell properties through our auction, Again, we give a, a, a donation for every single property we sell. So we accumulate quite sizable sums of money. And then we will not send those to big, organised charities that have got 200 people on the payroll um, and targets and forecasts and budgets and TV advertising. That's not where I think I can help. Um, we're very local. I do keep it in the local community. I obviously have a soft spot for our own community because we don't get served particularly well. So we've done everything from buying girls football team shirts to sending uh, a young girl who had cancer in the nose that could only be treated in America, but nobody would pay for her mum and dad to go there. So we picked that up. But we don't... I'm sharing that with you because you've asked me the question. I could give you a 100 other examples. We do them because we want to do them. We don't do them for publicity and promotion and, you know, isn't Paul a good boy? That's not what it's about. It's because we, you know, we've all given somebody a gift in our lives, haven't we? Giving the gift is far more rewarding than receiving it and that's really what we're in a lucky position to be able to do. Right. And um, going back off that as well, you know, um, I know we touched upon it in the introduction uh, regarding Sandwell Valley School. Can you tell us about what, what you built there and what the vision behind that is so I, I'd helped a little organization in the educational space and it became obvious to me that the biggest problem they had was that all these young uh, children 
coming from Pakistan, India, Syria, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, children who were UK-based, I mean, white, black, didn't matter, whose parents were moving around, having issues in and out of prison, maybe changing their jobs, because they weren't settled. They were arriving at a school, aged 14, but with an academic ability of 10. But the school just stuck them in the class of 14-year-olds, and they came out the other end useless. So we took these kids off the schools, put them into our school, and in classes of three and four, took a kid that was 14, who used to have the educational attainment of 10, to getting his A-levels on time. Um, and of course, they come from families where that problem exists. So when if you put one bright A-level kid who's now at university into a family where no one's got any education, he goes back into the family and he helps two or three more. So that school's now got 200 pupils. We've had kids wow. go to university and everything from there. So we bought the building. We gave them the building to use on, on no rent or anything for a number of years. Um, and we've supported it in many other ways as well. So that's, you know, simplistically, that's a school and we're looking to open a second one. Fantastic. And um, the second one you're looking to open up, do you have any ideas of where it will be? Uh, likely to be around Birmingham and the black country again. Great. Yeah. And um, you talk about some of the difficulties kids have, you know, these days, obviously, you know, with, with their backgrounds and you're supporting them. Uh, one of the stories which fascinated me in your book was, um, you know, dealing with racism uh, at a time, um, you know, where it was rife, um, you know, around the 70s and 80s for Asians in particular. Um, can you talk to us about how that affected your mindset at an early age and if it, you know, what it did for you? Again, you know, the, the, the Sikhism bit of not being pushed around, not being taken advantage of, helped me quite considerably, added to which I was physically very fit. Um, so racism, people have no idea what it was like, and, and I'm not into getting the violin out, but the world of then and the world of today, I mean, today there are certain words you can't use and it makes the front pages. When I got called an FM packy every day of every week for 10, 20 years of my life, but I didn't really care. But it, it makes you stronger, it makes you more determined. And after a while, people see that in you. And they very quickly, all the good guys very quickly, think they just want to deal with you. They don't care whether you're black, white, brown, what religion you are. You know, you, you get on with it. But you know, racism was not a pleasant thing in the UK. And I think it's fantastic today that we're a, we're a multicultural society that's uh, you know that's making a lot of progress. Absolutely. And how important was that strong backbone for yourself in business and anybody coming up to have that toughness about them? Well, it wouldn't have done me any harm. <laughs> I, th there were there were boys in my school and girls. Occasionally, I used to have to. I could have been younger than them. I could have been older than them. I would have had to go and sort of step in a little bit because I was at a school that was predominantly English people, few Asian, few black people. Um, if you let it get the better of you, it would destroy you. And we see what goes on on social media with a bit of, bit of bullying. Um, you know, in a way that's harder to deal with. Um, but you know, having a background, I say to anybody, you know, if, if you are getting bullied, you are having problems, speak to somebody. Mm. Um, but I was super lucky that, you know, my grand would tell me all these stories about the 
gurus would kill this man and kill that man and fight with this man. And I just thought, well, they did it, then I'm, I'm going to be the same. You know, obviously you've got such a big background in property. I'm sure you're obviously well networked. Where do you see the property market going over the next five to ten years, especially with the changes within like prop tech that we're seeing? Yeah. Uh, I always think fools make predictions. So, <laughs> um, where do I think the property world's going to go? Um, l- let me talk about the Midlands property scene because there's global property, there's UK property. The Midlands property scene is pretty safe. We're so far behind the curve. London, square foot, 1,000 to 4,000. Birmingham, top properties, £400, and we're only 10% of it. We've got so much catching up to do. We've got Commonwealth Games, we've got City of Culture, you've got HS2. Um, I think Birmingham Midlands real estate is going to do very well. HS2, um, obviously that's massive, you know, with the investment that's gone behind it in the timelines as well. Do you think it will get done and what impact will it have on the Midlands? Listen, no project ever from from your grandmother's extension <laughs> to HS2 has ever happened on time and ever happened in budget. Um, and I get the argument about this is a lot of money. I absolutely get that. But if we want to compete on a global basis, we've got to have infrastructure and transport of a global standard. And you know, HS2 has to get done. And... If politicians want to be in power in the future, they've got to share the national cake with everybody in the UK, not just with lots of very wealthy people in London and the South East. And they now know that they need to look after them because they won't vote them in anymore. Um, So I think the property market in the UK is going to be pretty good. I think the UK regions will do very well. London is a global warehouse for capital. Nothing will change. I'm sure they'll come to an arrangement that works for Europe and the UK in the coming months. Um, the only prediction I will make is that we'll have more cliff-edge moments this year, just like we had last year. We've got a little holiday at the moment. When they start renegotiating the real Brexit terms, um, we'll all be back to all that. Will we won't be. But, it, you know, the sun will rise. Life will go on. What I would say is there's a lot of uncertainty out there. That's when you make money. Yeah. I was just about to ask you, um, because of that uncertainty, does, does that actually excite you as opposed to uh, worry? Yeah, I'm beyond excited. <laughs> um, but, you know, do I like to buy things for half of their value? Of course I do. Um, the good thing in uncertain times, you get to buy really good real estate. And... You know, when the markets are really strong, you can only pick up the fag ends because somebody else, if, if you imagine Monopoly board, um, when there's uncertain times and people are troubled, you get to buy Bond Street. Um, and when things are really fine, no one will sell Bond Street. Um, so, you know, we I bought some stuff two or three weeks ago. Um, Emmington, not far from Coventry. Okay. Lovely high street, really good occupiers. I think we paid about half what I should have paid for that. Um so, you know, it's a good time to buy if you can pick and choose, be selective. Um, retail is troubled, but again, amongst retail, there's some really good opportunities because everyone's tarnishing all retail the same. Go onto certain high streets, you can't move, can you? Well, that's not troubled retail. Um, so you can pick and choose and be selective, but uncertain times do bring opportunities. And um, that reminds me of an <laughs> another part I read in your book where you found... You mentioned one of your great skills is you know how to time the market. 
is that something you're born with? You you grow over time. Where does that come from? Uh, it's abs- anybody can do this, right? If you drive around, the thing is, people drive around or walk around with their eyes shut. Um, for me, I'm at an advantage. If our phones aren't going, if no one's viewing properties, and if I look in the local paper or on Rightmove and the same properties are for sale for the last six months, that's not a good market, is it? Okay. If properties are being sold every day and there's sold signs everywhere all the time, that's a strong market. So all I do is look at those very simple measures and react to them. Um, at the moment, everyone's running away from retail. Um, you know, prices have gone from there to there. Um, I think it's a good time to buy. Um, coronavirus, the stock market, has lost a lot of money recently. Um you know, there'll be a moment to go back into that stock market. I don't think it's yet. Um, and again, you've got to be selective, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but you know, uncertainty, unrest, trouble times—that's when I've made money. Do you use that commercial awareness across all businesses, or just property and real yeah, estate? Everything. I mean, we went into the restaurant business um, when restaurants were falling apart. Um, we opened restaurant industry has gone through a restructure um, where we're expanding at the moment because we're getting fully fitted restaurants by a multiple with toilets air conditioning flooring shop fronts all done for you and they've given the keys back and walked away what a great time to go in all that's done for you a little bit of rebranding half the rent you used to pay because the landlord's now got an empty shop and you've got a business so it's you know you you, you Everything's about the entry price when you're investing. It's all about the price you're going at. So you've yeah. got to get that right. If, if you didn't go into property, what business do you think you would have gone into? Um, I, I'm, property just happens to be a product. Um, I think my background of being Sikh, landowning and all of that sort of stuff probably encouraged me to go that way. My father was in the property business. Um, that encouraged me. Um, you know, I'm good at marketing, I'm good at sales, I would have found something else to sell or market particularly well. Um, so that, you know, and today people say, what business would you go in today? You know, I think I'd be all over some kind of app. Yeah. Uh, that, that's where I'd be sticking. But, you know, I'd still be buying real estate because those things can go up and down. Real estate, I know every quarter we get X thrown into our bank account. And it's quite nice going home one night, coming back to work and opening up your appropriate sort of pages and seeing the money come in, it's, yeah, really nice. yeah. Brilliant. And um, look, thanks so much for that insight. I'm, I'm really confident, you know, anybody watching this could have got so much knowledge on business, real estate, um, you know, great gems about how to live your life and, you know, what to do moving forward. Um, how we like to end each episode, uh, we like to ask a final five questions. We try to tailor them uh, okay. <laughs> from who we're, who we're speaking to. Um, so um, first question, uh, you credit a lot of books within your own book. What's the one book that you would advise anybody to start off with? Um, I didn't know you were asking me that question, but actually there are three books. Okay. And I think books come along to you at the right time in your life. Because if you're not ready to read a certain book, you, you don't read it very long, you kind of put it down, you leave it alone. When I was younger, there's a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Um, you know, late 20s, that worked for me. 
um, late 30s, early 40s, um, the um, Good to Great series, which was Good to Great, Built to Last, How the Mighty Fall, and Great by Choice. So the Think and Grow Rich gave me my attitude, my aspiration. These books gave me all the knowledge I needed on how to structure businesses and when to fire a torpedo, <laughs> when to fire a bullet and all that sort of stuff. More recently, I read a book called, um, I think it's called Stillness. Now, I'm nearly 60 now, and actually at this time of life, I need to have a little bit of stillness, a bit more calm, a little bit of Buddhism. So those are the three books that, that I would that have worked for me. I, I, I love that on um, Think Rich, Grow Rich. That That's what I read a year before I set up my own company. Yeah. Um, did wonders on that. Yeah. And what's the favourite uh, bit of property or land that you own? I'm so unemotive about property. <laughs> um, I, I love my home. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a lovely house. Of fun building a garage block to collect cars in, so that's something I wouldn't have done when I was younger. Um, you know, doing all sorts of unnecessary things with it. So yeah, my my homes. I have a home in Spain, I have to say, which I adore. So probably both homes. Right. And um, what's your, what would you say your proudest business achievement is? If there's one that stands out. Um, probably the team I surrounded myself with. You know, I've got. If I had to go to war, I'd take my team with me. We'd be fine. Absolutely fine. And um, your favourite quote to live by? There's so many quotes. There's so many quotes, but I suppose one that's useful for your listeners. <laughs> um, how you do anything is how you do everything. I mean, as simple as turning the light off in a room when you walk out of a room. When I walk past and I see someone's got an untidy desk, you know, how people welcome people, you know, just tiny little things. You know, you, that's how you do the big stuff. That's how you do the little stuff. And those are the guys that really excel. And uh, final question. What advice would you tell your 20-year-old self? Um, be in the moment. I, I really, until I got into my 50s, I, it's all passed me by. Um, I occasionally tried, but I'm going to try for 30 seconds and I jump out. I don't drink, but I even bought a couple of cases of champagne. So the next time we do a deal, we'll, we'll celebrate. So we did, we opened a bottle of champagne. I didn't drink it. I went down to my office. Everyone else finished the bottle off and I, I never saw those two crates of champagne again. So be in the moment. You've got to, you know, you're all quite young men. Let me tell you, I can blink when I was 18 running around a football pitch. And, you know, now I can't run around a football pitch. So, you know, be in the moment and enjoy whatever you're doing. And, you know, dance to your own tune. Don't worry what anyone else thinks they want for you, what you want to do. You decide what you want to do and you do it. You work hard at it, harder than anyone else. You'll be absolutely fine. That's fantastic. Um, once again, thank you so much, Paul. Um, absolute pleasure. And um, remember to like, share and subscribe. And also, if you haven't already, get the book. Um, like we haven't even covered like 1% of the gems that are in there. Is there anything else you'd like to mention on where people can find you? Uh, the, the, the books, 
my way of sort of sharing what I learned. The book did very well. It was the best-selling book on Amazon uh, last year. Um, enjoy the book. Um, if you enjoy it, tell me. And if you don't enjoy it, tell me. But, uh, um, yeah, enjoy the book. And uh, it's just all the profits again to a good cause. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thank you.